Welcome to More to Come, PW's weekly podcast of comics and graphic novel news, recorded live at the offices of Publishers Weekly here in glamorous New York City. I'm Heidi McDonald, the editor-in-chief of The Beat at ComicsBeat.com, and you can check us out uh, on, let's see, I always, I don't do this, uh, on Facebook, you can check us out at PW Comics World, and you can also check us out on Twitter at, at PW Comics World. And I'm Kate Simmons, I'm the podcast producer, and you can find us on Tumblr at pwcomicsworld.tumblr.com. Um, by the way, our third party, <laughs> Calvin Reed, uh, editor of the Fanatic Comics Newsletter, is not here this week because he is already, where is he? Uh, well, he's off to ALA. He is leaving for the American Library Association um, uh, conference uh, tomorrow. We're recording this early also as we record. It's early in the week. It is only Tuesday, uh, but I am also heading off there on Thursday. So um, so Kate and I, as we do about once a year, it's just, uh, just us, me and Kate, um, don't forget, you can uh, subscribe to More to Come on iTunes. And if you do happen to listen to it, please leave us a comment. Let us know how we're doing. Give us a pat on the back. You know, you can give us a kick in the teeth. We would prefer if you don't. But, you know, we like honesty and we like reactions. We just like knowing that you're listening. By the way, you can also find us on Blueberry and Stitcher as well as another – as well as a variety of other places where fine podcasts can be found. Because we are a fine podcast. We hope. We hope. Enjoy. Um, so this week on More to Come, um, let me see. Uh, Barnes & Noble finally acquired. Um, the New York Times kicks out editorial cartoons. The Legion has returned. New York Comic Con has got a shrinking artist alley. And Kate really loved Good Omens. So let's get right to it. Um, okay. Well, the big story, uh, was that Barnes and Noble, after years <laughs> of rumors and, uh, speculation and wondering what was going to happen, they finally did manage to sell themselves. They sold themselves to Elliott Management, which is kind of a hedge fund, which doesn't sound so awesome, actually. Uh, however, the hedge fund in question, uh, also owns Waterstones, which is a pretty successful British um, chain and the guy who sort of brought Waterstones back from the dead uh, will be running. Um, will yes, will be running uh, Barnes and Noble also. Now this was a a stock acquisition. Um, there was a last minute suitor. A book distribution company said that they were coming in at the last minute and they were going to make a higher offer because some of the uh, um, stockholders were thinking that the um, offer was a little bit under uh underwhelming but uh it went through and now Barnes and Noble's no longer owned by Len uh Riggio. It's law it's founder actually. He's been there forever. So yeah, it's a whole new world. I hope he got a pile of money. Uh I'm sure he did. Um the, the Barnes and Noble will no longer be no longer be public, so we will no longer be able to get those juicy stock reports and you know profits uh and you know no more announcements of how much money it's making. So um, but yeah, this has been speculated on for a long time. So what do you think this, this says for the future of Barnes and Noble and graphic novels of Barnes and Noble and books? Well, you know, uh, there has been, um, you know, Barnes and Noble is really too big to fail, Kate. Um, it was said that it is the last book chain when Borders went under, which was all the way back in 2011 now, so quite a while ago. But uh, there was a huge dip in sales of manga, especially, but all books. Yeah. And uh, it was a huge impact on the book industry. And all the publishers are sort of like, you know, never again. We can't let this happen. So, you know, if Barnes & Noble, they are profitable. I mean, they make money. It's not like, you know, at the peak, they had $5 billion in sales. Um, they're not at their peak now. The sales are down about to where they were in 2002, which isn't great. Um, but I mean, people still go to Barnes and Noble and buy a lot of books. So it's not like there isn't a strong core business there. And we've seen, as we've talked about many times in this podcast, we've seen indie bookstores have really rebounded. They really have. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, partly I kind of wonder if part of the reason some of the money went missing is Barnes and Noble's ill-thought-out <laughs> attempt to go into the e-reader physical device business. Yes, the Nook. The Nook. 
I think maybe if Barnes & Noble had stuck to the Nook app and uh, had maybe, instead of starting their own ill-advised device, since they're not a technology company, had instead partnered up with technology companies, I think a lot of, of other places you could get a tablet would have probably been more than happy to have an alternative to the Kindle app. Yeah, I mean, you know what? Apps and ebooks have pl- plateaued completely. Are there have either plateaued or in decline? I mean, this is something that people were really going big on um, back in the day, but I don't think there's really that much. Um, it plateaued at a lot of money. Yes, it is a significant part. I mean, sp- talking specifically about comics and graphic novels, I mean, it's still, it's just kind of you know flatten that a certain amount of the, well, I, the sales. I, I think it it has matured to the percentage of sales yes, it's going to be. That's right. And that's a completely reasonable thing. But I think you have a lot more flexibility when you're dealing with the internet and software than you when you're dealing with like thousands of pieces of physical equipment. Exactly. And um you know, that was definitely a big mistake that Barnes and Noble made was, you know, launching this whole technology initiative. That and they, taking up a lot of their floor space with it. And they stuck with it for a long time. Long, long, long and, time. You it, know, it I reminds could, me of the, the, uh, the Zune. The Zune. <laughs> it's like the Zune. The Nook is like yes, the Zune. The Nook is the Zune. And you know, there's a third one, the Kobo. That's still kind of around. Uh, but apparently, you know, Waterstones, does not have an ebook uh, program like they also like partnered with Kobo as as a lot of yeah. foreign companies did. Yeah, Kobo actually is successful, just not in the United States. Right, exactly. Um, but uh, I think, as we said here many times, the bottom line is that books have survived a lot longer than other any other media. You yeah. know, any other any digital media that was popular uh, fifteen years ago. Well, so, I don't think digital books are going anywhere either. No, no, I agree. But I mean, physical printed books seem to have a very strong audience. Yes, so, they do. So, um, Waterstones has really succeeded and kind of bounced back in the UK by kind of extreme localization like they've kind of made each store very relevant to the needs of that particular community and. Um, the guy who is taking over and you know i can't remember his name i'm really sorry i'm trying to look it up and this is a huge heidi fail but um he has said that he will bring kind of the same um the same idea to uh to barnes and noble that you know they're going to look at each store i mean they might close unprofitable stores but they're they're going to try to be more localized and i think that's a very sound idea i think it is i think looking at what sells where you are because i mean i'm going to admit <laughs> if you look at the magazine section of Barnes and Noble, there's usually about half the magazines where you're like, I don't think anyone ever buys this magazine at this Barnes and Noble. Right. Ever. Right. I was at um unbelievably my Dwayne Reed and they have a magazine section. <laughs> And I stopped by it and I was like, wow, why do they even have this? I mean, it really is kind of sad and irrelevant right now. No, I mean, I don't think all magazines, but I mean, the thing is that like they need to localize their magazine section is what I'm talking about. Right. Because, for example, like in your Barnes & Nobles, in a shopping center, in the middle of suburban Pennsylvania, I, I just don't think some of your edgier music magazines are going to be flying off the shelves. Right. But at the same time, I kind of really don't think that um, certain New York City Barnes & Nobles are really going to have like country living cooking magazine yeah i well, mean when well, i well maybe country looking cooking cooking country living cooking magazine but they're not going to have tea time magazines yes. flying off the shelves or southern lady right um the name of the of the president of waterstones is james daunt and he is taking over now pw has a big interview with him and he talks a good game um so uh, and he is praised. Everybody says he's he's um, a smart executive. Right. And he's coming in from the same industry. Right. This is not a case of someone being like, oh, well, John Smith was wonderful at selling toilet paper. I'm sure he can sell books. Yeah. So, I, I mean, you know, when a hedge fund buys a company, usually they do it so that they can boost it and then flip it. So um, we don't really know what Elliot's, you know, limited's um, – uh, plans for Barnes and Noble are entirely. I mean, I think overall 
they needed a goose. I think uh, we've seen how tired this um, this uh, chain is. Well, and we've seen how mismanaged this yes. chain has been in recent history. I mean, there have been any number of things which have just made us go, what? Like, <laughs> well, they're just going to fire the experienced staff. And it's like, oh, how that's, how's that store going to run? Right. How's that store going to run? Right. And for what this means directly for graphic novels, uh, I mean, I've heard anecdotally that the graphic novel sections have been shrinking a bit into Barnes & Noble mm. nationwide just because, um, you know, graphic novel sales are have declined a bit from their peak. And a lot of it is maybe because of... Um, the Walking Dead cooling off or, you know, this cooling off or that cooling off. I mean, kids' graphic novels are huge, as we keep saying here. So, um, you know, there's a lot more to come on this story, um, really. But, I, I mean, I think for right now, everybody's kind of glad that there was a change or looking forward to having a change. Let's put it this way. It's It shows the possibility of hope. Yes. <laughs> um, And... I mean, it's not the worst thing to weed what graphic novels you have in a Barnes & Noble. I'm not saying that any of these graphic novels should not exist. I'm just saying that, you know, you have to see what you think is going to sell where your store is. Right. Kate, do you buy graphic novels? I do buy graphic novels, but I don't buy them at a Barnes & Noble. I buy them at a comic store. Ah, okay. Very good. Well, um, I I think I may have... Or in digital. Right. I may have mentioned this in our last podcast, so forgive me, but... um. You know, there's uh, talk that BookScan will start counting graphic novel sales in comic shops. They and should. that would be really cool, I think. Um, I, and I think overall we're seeing a shift if comic shops are going to turn into indie bookstores. You know, they're going to go that way. Well, um, I think they're, they are and always have been really a flavor of indie bookstore. Mm-hmm. And I think now they're just going to, I don't know. I think the mainstream has come to them because I was in the mall in the town I grew up in last weekend and I was astonished that I mean we all know Hot Topic has fan junk right but then now there's some place called Box Lunch which is (laughs) nothing but fan junk wow Box Lunch and um you know, and then I passed the sneaker store and they had Harry Potter sneakers for adults in the window. And I just feel like, I mean, I don't begrudge it. I'm not like, oh, those mainstream people, how dare they steal fandom? I just feel more like the embrace of things fandom right. has crept closer to the mainstream. Oh, crept. I mean, it's jumped closer. It's jumped closer. They've got two fan junk stores right. in the mall. Well, another uh, piece of news this week was that Think Geek closed down, which was like the original kind of online, um, you know, geek email order. Well, Think Geek already was cannibalized by GameStop right. a while ago. So I think... I don't know how much they'll succeed at it, but I think GameStop's idea was to absorb all of ThinkGeek's delicious merchandise and merchandise know-how into their otherwise boring stores. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one of the biggest trends in retail right now is uh, Bopis and Boris. Uh, Buy online, purchase, uh, pick up in-store, and buy online, return in-store. And, um, you know, I just did this yesterday. I ordered some clothing online and then I went to Neiman Marcus last call to pick it up. And I do this all the time. I do it for Uniqlo. I do it everywhere. And, uh, they've discovered that, um, when people go to the physical store, they buy new things. And, you know, it's true. <laughs> you go to the store and you're like, Oh my God, it's a, it's a, it's a little makeup bag. I love this. And you buy it. So, um, you know, people like physically looking at things. I mean, Amazon is trying and trying to uh, make it all virtual online, but people still like seeing things well, in person. And people like actually having a thing in their hand, yes. knowing they'll have it. For example, I needed more underwear, as human beings sometimes do. <laughs> That's right. And uh, I placed an order with Amazon mm-hmm. because I needed underwear sooner rather than later. Right. Because laundry. Yes. And uh, <laughs> they lost my underwear, and they kept stringing me along for a week, being like, oh... Uh, we are looking for your package. We are looking for your package. <laughs> you know, Kate, the subtext of this story is very, very sad. <laughs> very daring, perhaps. I don't know. 
<laughs> I mean, obviously, I washed my underwear and I had underwear. <laughs> Listeners, don't worry. Uh, and I just went, I'm tired of this. And I went to the store and I bought underwear. Well, you know, they sell underwear even at Dwayne Reed here. Just going back no, to Dwayne but Reed. I, I, but, yeah, but did I want Dwayne Reed's crappy mm, underwear? No, no, no I did not. Um I, I did not want to go out of my way for a completely boring item of clothing. Right. But, you know, when you buy it in the store, you have it in your hand, you're like, yes, these are indeed underpants, and they're the <laughs> correct size. Well, we don't know if Barnes & Noble is going to start selling underpants, but, um, you know, there are going to be some changes there. So uh, there will be more to come. Um <laughs> How did you like that segue, guys? I'm a real pro. Um, so another big story in the news this week, uh, was the New York Times. The com- once comics loving New York Times. Well, they're not so comics loving anymore. They have completely ended all editorial cartoons. Well, you know, as someone who typically uses the New York Times app, mm-hmm. um, I had long noticed that the editorial cartoons were nowhere to be seen. I mean, they might have been somewhere in the app, but I never had any success in finding them. And I think more and more of their readers are online. So kind of the backstory for this is that uh, about a month ago, there was a cartoon that ran in the New York Times that was accused of being anti-Semitic. That, well, it kind of was. Yeah, it kind of was. Yes, it was. And uh, they got a lot of flack for that. And then a month later, they're like, oh, oh, so... So it came in through a uh, syndicate, and then the editor who picked the cartoon was reprimanded or fired. We're not quite sure. And um, so, but then a month later, they're like, you know what? We're not going to run any more editorial cartoons. Now, one thing that is a little bit lost in the outcry is that, to your point about the app, you know, the domestic edition of the New York Times hasn't run editorial cartoons for a long time. They're like the only newspaper that doesn't run. You know, they never ran comic strips. They did have editorial cartoons, but they have not been in the domestic edition for a long time. So Why is that? Because it's the New York freaking Times. (laughs) You know? That says nothing. Well, I think... Certain people at the New York Times, it's, you know, August, it's been around a long time, and I think it's a kind of a example of a much older, more established media entity that does not take drawn entertainment quite as seriously as some younger, more nimble outlets. Well, but if you go to any museum that carries these items, you will find (laughs) that the editorial cartoon has a long and storied history going back long before the existence of the New York Times. Well, that's correct. The Yellow Kid by Pat Alfont was the... No, not by by, uh, R.F. Oco. No. Editorial cartoons long predate that. that's true. Editorial cartoons go far back into the 1700s. Uh, where you had all these, you know, wood bill woodcuts that were unmistakably political cartoons. Absolutely. And you know what? If you go to Pompeii, uh, you'll see that people did graffiti. No, but we're not talking that. We're talking literally yes. commercially printed right. cartoons with political jokes in them. Absolutely. It is exactly and, the same medium and the same thing. And a lot of people think that Goya's, um, co- you know, woodcuts were political cartoons, and they kind of were. And yes, you're absolutely right. This is one of the oldest and most distinguished kinds of cartooning that there is. So there was a lot of outcry when this um, was announced, and, uh, you know, more editorial cartoons out of work, editorial cartoonists out of work, um, because there's been, you know, newspapers are shrinking. We know that. And they're shedding talent and they're shedding costs. And one of the th- causes they've been shedding is editorial cartoonists. So there was a lot of pushback. The uh, National Cartoonist Society issued a, um, issued a statement about it. And, you know, a lot of people, the message really was, what cowards you are. You get one thing that is bad and then you're like, oh, let's just cut out the whole part of it. Um, it you're turning the wrong message from that. It's like if you got, I don't know, lambasted rightly for a terrible article that you would just say, well, I guess we were not printing articles anymore. Like that doesn't make any sense. Right. The problem is that it was terrible, not that it was a cartoon. Yeah. Well, um, you know, people made some uh, fast decisions there. So, I mean, I think it's really a shame. It really and, is. And um, uh, luckily, uh, the you know, the internet giveth, the internet taketh away. I mean, there's a lot of great online portals. Of course, the Nib is the number one that people think of. 
but um you know there's there's several other um um you know medium has a comic section um they've had several actually that come and go and the nib used to be on medium but it moved but um you know there's a lot of online comics and places for people to make comics that are uh very um nonfiction and repertorial and are really amazing. And you know, the freaking New York Times won a freaking Pulitzer for one of their hybrid they called it a graphic novel. I mean I wouldn't say that. It was a little bit longer, but it was about Syrian refugees and it was graphic journalism, yes, which is a little different than cartoony Right. Editorial cartoons, but yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it's also... It's a graphic work. Right. It was. And, you know, they said that they would continue doing things that were, um, you know, works of graphic literature. You know, they would do things that were mixed media. But, um, you know, shame on you, you, New York Times. I mean, you know, just, you 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 know, you fired the editor who picked the anti-Semitic cartoon. Just have some standards. <laughs> You're the New York Times. How hard is it to have someone who just looks at things and goes, you know what? That's a bad idea. <sighs> you guess... have it in the rest of the magazine. Surely your cartoon section can have that person too. I guess it's really hard, Kate. <laughs> well, uh, well, you know, DC was very busy this week. Um, and Busy, I, busy. Yes. DC so, so there was a lot of announcements. Were there any that struck you? Well, um, what, what would you like to start with? We, uh, well, we have I'd, many options. Well, I'd like your, well, the biggest one for me was that the Legion was back, finally. The Legion of Superheroes is back, and, um, Brian Bendis is writing it, and I'm gonna have to look up the name of the artist, because I'm gonna be honest. I'm not a Legion fan. Um, but a lot of people are. There seems to be a very specific flavor of comic book taste <laughs> that leads one to be a Legion fan. Yes, I've noticed that. I can't quite encapsulate it, <laughs> but it seems to be a liking for straight-faced absurdity, which indeed I have as well, but I still don't enjoy the Legion, and um, a like liking for casts of millions of characters. So, Kate, um, I've noticed that Legion fans tend to be very logical about a lot of things and very... Um, you know, uh, very sure of certain things that they like. Mm-hmm. I think that's a fair way to put it. So, but yeah. so you have not ever been into the Legion because so you have strong tastes. I have strong tastes. I mean, I admit I have not read a vast amount of Legion. Perhaps there is a Legion run that I have missed that would be, you know, suited to me. But it just, I just can't get into it. I bounce off it. I don't, I, you know, the, the various different angles, which usually lead me to get into uh, a book or a graphic novel where either the plot just seems really awesome or the characters are really interesting or, uh, admittedly, someone shows me a few panels of some glorious absurdity <laughs> that says, yes. Yes, this is something I need in my life. Um, it doesn't have any of those. Really? You didn't like Bouncing Boy and Duo Damsel? You know... Matter Eater Lead? I mean, come on. These are classics. They are classics, but they're classics that just have me going, I don't get it. (laughs) I am sure there are people who get it. I am just not among them. Well, I know a lot of hardcore Legion fans. I, I, I know of them as well. Yes. And I'm very happy for them. Well, uh, the book is going to be written by Brian Bendis, and it will be drawn by Ryan Sook, who's really awesome. Mm-hmm. Actually, he's an incredible artist. And, uh, you know, the art that they released, they did redesigns for all the characters, of course. Uh, and the art that they showed was outstanding. So, um, you know, there is not a snowball's chance in hell that I'm going to pick up this Legion book. I but... will pick it up. <laughs> I'm not saying I will pay money for it, but I'll look at it. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not against the Legion. They do not offend me in any right. way. And maybe this book will be good. So, uh, but Kate, DC had a lot of other announcements. Were it there any did. That it had not you? one, but two major Harley Quinn announcements. Mm. So, I guess they're trying to cover all of their Harley Quinn bases um, as we lead up to the movie. Uh, because first, they have a black label miniseries called Harleen, which 
purports to be an adult backstory <laughs> Harleen, comic. Harleen, 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 don't take away my superhero. <laughs> <sighs> so. <laughs> um, so it, it, let's see. So it's going to be, ooh, yeah, Stepan Sedgick. On it, which that is a man who likes his cheese puff. Yeah, he's uh, got all these kind of kinky comics that he does for Top Cow, so it's quite uh, well. But kinky. I, mean, I, I, I will, I will give him this. Okay, there are a lot of male cheesecake artists who seem to see their female characters as strictly cheesecake, right? Whereas in his self-written books, as as well as just in the art he does for other people's books, they are definitely portrayed as as interesting human beings and his art has a bit of a sense of humor to it and so does his writing they're just interesting human beings who he thinks are very hot right um but you know uh sunstone makes (laughs) very (laughs) very very clear where his id lies (laughs) and he likes uh lesbian and bisexual women and BDSM. And that has no relevance to Harley Quinn. What are you talking about? And I have to say, I I I do kind of think that this is a good fit <laughs> of uh matter to creator as long as you make sure it is the adult line. Right. Because I don't think he'd be able to restrain himself. Right. Well, you know, in a way, this is the ultimate no-brainer. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people were thinking, Jesus, why don't they get that Stefan Sajic guy to do Harley Quinn? That would be perfect. I, I don't think a they were. little bit daring, but, but I think go it, for it. when it happened, people were like, okay, I can see it. Yeah. In fact, when I saw, I saw Sajic, I was like, wait, wait, wait. Okay, I get it now. And, uh, you know, his wife, Linda, is also a very good artist, and she does a lot of great stuff as well. Yes, so, they're both very uh, talented, yes, and they work a, well together. Yes, and if you read some of their books, you get quite an insight into their marriage as well. So, Well, <laughs> or at least into their shared interests. <laughs> yes, their shared interests, yes. So, And you know what? That's honest. That's nice. Yeah. Uh, so what else? What else piqued your interest? But there's not one. Oh, yes. But wait, there's more. There's not one but two Harley Quinn books. Because if you don't particularly want Harleen from Black Label, you can have Harley and Ivy. Oh, so that has no kind of bisexual lesbian subtext, correct? Well, okay. (laughs) You're dealing with Harley Quinn, who in her creation, in a children's cartoon, was oozing bisexual subtext bordering on text to the point of probably not subtext. Um, you know, I mean, it kind of is baked into the character. Right. So, and also, it, um, I mean, her upcoming movie is not going to be her and the Joker. That's right. It's going to be her having various adventures with various other female characters. (laughs) So, now, now, listeners, not that kind of adventure. Oh. Except in your fan fiction. Yes. But, you know, I mean, I, I think they're, they may be trying to fill or alert audiences to the side of Harley Quinn that is not Joker-centric. Right. Which is great, you know, because, because that's a really messed up relationship that a lot of people have pointed to that, you know, even in the original cartoons where she appeared, um, and certainly in Mad Love by well, the creators, so, uh, co-creators Paul Dini and Bruce Tim, it's a very, very unhealthy relationship. Well, I mean, the kudos to the original cartoon, unlike maybe some more recent interpretations of the relationship, they in no way paper over the fact this relationship is wrong, 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 totally wrong, just such a bad idea. Right. It's made painfully clear in the kids' cartoon. Unlike some later iterations and some denser fans who <laughs> see it more as like, yes, they're both crazy, but isn't it romantic? Yes. And it's oh, like, pudding. yeah. <laughs> and you're like, well, it's true that both of them are both nutty in the sense of eccentric and mentally ill, but he's still abusive and she's not. Right. And I mean, you know, emancipating Harley from this abusive, 
um, psychologically um, draining relationship. I think if, if they get to do that in the movie, I think that'll be really great. That'll I be mean, really great because yeah. the, my favorite part, the very best moment of Suicide Squad when watching the first time, sadly a little disappointing afterwards, <laughs> was I was sitting in the theater with a bunch of other female comic book fans and when we thought that they had killed off the Joker in order to, you know, a gender flopped version of the usual, oh no, my wife is dead, now I vengeance. We were like, yes! The Joker was fridged for Harley! Awesome! No more Joker, especially because it was a particularly obnoxious flavor of Joker. And we were just like, yes! No more Jared Leto! All the Harley Quinn, give it to us. Om nom 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 nom. Yeah, but that was at like the halfway mark. So and nothing then, that happens in a halfway oh, mark is last. Well, no, that's not true. If it were somebody's non-famous girlfriend character or even famous girlfriend oh, yes. character, oh, they yes. would have stayed dead. Oh, absolutely. Dead. Or a person of color or a queer character. Of course they would stay dead. Yeah, girlfriends <laughs> would stay dead. And I think even boyfriends who weren't the Joker might stay yeah, dead. Yeah, all right. Fair enough. But, they did kill off that guy who climbed the fence like in the first 10 minutes of the yeah. movie. So. Yeah, they'll kill off some guys for you. No problem. But, I think his uh, name was Fence Climber. What was it? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so Jar- I'm not a big fan of the Joker, but Jared Leto's Joker was especially well. You know, we should we should devote a whole show to what's going on with, or at least a good portion, and really, uh, you know, double down. I would love that because Uh, because there's two Joker movies coming: one with Joaquin Phoenix, which is kind of a highfalutin quality movie, and then there's this other Jared Leto solo movie, and then there's Harleen Harleen, and and yeah, it's just crazy. Yeah, and Suicide Squad uh, two directed by James Gunn, and blah 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 blah. I mean, I. The one that I'm looking at and going, but why is the Jared Leto Joker movie? And all I can think is contractual obligations. Yeah. Because it has no other reason to exist. Well, uh, you know, I think there was a moment of confusion there. So, um, so, uh, yeah. Anyway, any, anything else, uh, quickly that, that was, uh, cool that DC announced, Kate? I mean, nothing else that jumped out at you. That- nothing else that made me go, yes, yes, this is incredibly... Oh, right. They're bringing back dollar comics. Oh, yeah. At yeah. DC. So once upon a time, a dollar was more than you usually spend on a comic. I mean, yes. this is before my time. If you had a dollar, you could buy anything. Mm. But uh so at that point, dollar comics were super big, extra thick. And then they kind of kept the label around occasionally up until the 80s where... For one reason or another, comics for a dollar. Well, DC is bringing them back. They will not be super big, extra thick. How many pages are in these dollar comics? Uh, well, let me check. I, I managed to miss the story also. I was guess I was out to lunch. I mean, I, honestly, DC had a lot of news last week. And I think we reported on our last podcast about, um, you know, the Vertigo line being uh, iced is kind of the way I've heard it. Um, Black Label is indeed taking over um, some of the books that were to have come out from Vertigo. And so, you know, there's a whole new adult-themed line in town. And uh, <laughs> let's hope this picks up some sales for uh, DC's back, uh, you know, backlist, which is obviously the hope. Um, well, they appear to be um, reprints of major oh, I see. issues that are just their usual length. <laughs> You know, but Marvel's has, hasn't Marvel been doing this kind of thing for a while? Actually, didn't, but the Marvel do Marvel first kind of thing. I think they've, this well, might be stealing a page. I don't know. From I know Marvel was doing things where they had like a comic that you could pick up that would really be like the first three issues of something. Right. I bought a couple of those, but they weren't for a dollar. Yeah, they, well, okay, maybe not Marvel, but I will say that the dollar reprint intro issue has been, you know, it's well, been around for I a mean, while. DC has done it before, quite frankly. They just haven't called them dollar comics. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, well, you know what? DC is trying a lot of things uh, to see what sticks against the wall. Um, and I imagine we'll be finding out more at this year's New York Comic Con. Yes, 
listeners. I know that you expect us to be all up in the grill of San Diego, which is just a couple of weeks from now, but I don't want to talk about it. Um, but, but, you know, New York Comic Con had the usual problems uh, with... And it had new problems, too, Heidi. Yes, it did. Yeah, Kate, you want to tell our listeners what happened? So, <laughs> so people on comics Twitter have started to see some very sad tweets mm. from some surprising people, such as even Ryan Dunleavy, um, where people are suddenly finding that there's no room at the inn. I mean, Comic-Con for them in Artist Alley at New York Comic-Con. Now, last year, there were two Artist Alleys. There was one at the spinoff anime, anime right. thing that you... Was that couldn't the, get into on the, the horrible same cyberpunk pier? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they had their own artist alley. Good luck to them. Um, but this year, that's not going to be the case. There's just going to be the one artist alley, and it's going to be at New York Comic Con. Right, and it's going to be up at the Crystal Pavilion. There, it's going to the, be in the Crystal Pavilion, there. which is nice, but tiny. oh wait, is it going to be there? Or is it going to be down in Hall E? Mm, let me check. Yeah, I think they were keeping it in Hall E, actually. Sorry about that. It was up in the Crystal Pavilion one year, and it was kind of a disaster. So Yeah, the Crystal Pavilion is good for the uh, for the Artist Alley of, say, an anime con, yes. which is smaller. But for something the size of New York Comic Con, it's a disaster. Yeah, because people get squeezed into the back. It's uh, not a good layout. Uh, but, you know, people get squeezed everywhere at the Javits Center during New York Comic Con. That is true. But it, the, the sheer floor space is not what it should be for a con the size of New York Comic Con. Right. So I guess the bottom line, though, in the story was just that, um, you know, there's a lot of competition for New York Comic Con's Artist Alley. And people who had been there for a long time were... Uh, turned down for Artist Alley. And, um, you know, they did kind of the same thing they do every year where, you know, very established comics professionals were told they didn't qualify as pros and couldn't get pro badges. And uh, then... The but as got- soon as they whined on Twitter yes. and enough people got mad, then magically they'd be able to get yeah. a badge because if you have enough fans who get mad on Twitter, you actually have fans. Right. And, um, you know, listen, I get it. We all get it. It's very small. Like, the Javits is so crowded. You can't add any more people. So, um, and it's for, I mean, I I understand that tough decisions have to be made for the safety, for the safety of everyone who attends. Well, I mean, what I'm going to say is that given that they are down in halls where there's other halls next to them, like if you go in there, a lot of those, um, line halls and just are just sort of. They're not entirely used. There well, are a lot of halls down there that are like 90% empty and have a signing way at the back. Well, I'll tell you. You could add some extra overflow artist alley there. I'll tell you the reason why they do have the queuing halls like that where people line up. Um, it's because one year they had it outside and it rained. And, um, you know, they don't want people to be waiting outside. Well, I'm not saying they're bad. Yeah. I'm just saying that even with the queues full, there's still a lot of unused space. Yes, that so is true. you could make the back of the room the queue hall and the front of the room extra artist alley. And then people who were bored and waiting f- for an event could buy some stuff. Yeah. Well, I, like I said, I mean, I'm, I am sympathetic to all the issues that, that the organizers of the show have, uh, given the space limitations and given the safety, uh, you know, concerns that they, they really have to have. Because as, you know, Kate, we've been going since it started. And when it gets bad there, uh, when it was bad, uh, it was really scary. It's uh, the scary, most, you know, scary I've ever been at a con with the crowding and, you know, not even being able to move. It was really, um, you know, but they don't do that anymore. I'm just saying well, they have yeah. to make sure and, that doesn't and happen. And even anymore. now, even now, if you are on the Artist Alley floor or the show floor on Saturday at peak hours, you are moving at a crawl. I mean, it makes, <laughs> it makes like doors opening on Black Friday look <laughs> or, like nothing. Or the Uniqlo riots. Did you see where the people in China were like rioting at the Uniqlo to get these t-shirts? Anyway, yes. Uh, it, it can be like that. Um, well, anyway, you know, uh, we got San Diego to get through. I'm sure we'll be having more, uh, more, more complaints. That. Yes. So we have only a few minutes left. Uh, Kate, I understand that you are very excited about something that you, uh, witnessed, some kind of filmed entertainment. Yeah. So, listeners, if you let Calvin or Heidi 
give you a picture of what I like. You, you would think that Kate likes nothing, but that's not true. I love a lot of things. I just am not into Avengers Endgame because that's way too depressing and boring and long for me. Sorry, kids. Uh, not that you should enjoy it, just that it's not my cup of tea. But what is my cup of tea? What is my, oh my god, the first thing I've binge-watched in years uh, was Good Omens. Aha! Uh-huh. Now, I I have been looking forward to the Good Omens miniseries since it was announced. I read the book years ago and loved it. I recently bought a new copy because I pawned off my incredibly ugly old used 90s copy <laughs> on somebody else. And I got a prettier copy for myself. It is a really fun... Um, light-hearted, smart, heartfelt comedy about the apocalypse. Yes. And averting it in a buddy comedy fashion. And as written by not one, but two great writers, Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. And it really has the strengths of both. Uh, It does. It really does. And it leans, quite frankly, a little heavier on the Terry Pratchett end in style. Um, I think they both contributed equally to the writing of the thing. But uh, the flavor is distinctly Pratchettian. Yeah. And, you know, it was... In the best possible It was uh, Neil's first novel, uh, you know, uh, and... So I think he was testing his fledgling wings with that, and you know, working with a co-writer was kind of an interesting move for him. But uh, collaborating, well, they were they were good friends, yes, they and were. Um, there was definitely, according to both of them in various interviews, they frequently would have trouble figuring out who had written what. <laughs> uh, but and be like, I thought you wrote that bit. No, no, I thought you wrote that bit. What did it spontaneously generate? Anyway, so. Um, I was looking forward to it, and I enjoyed it vastly and deeply. It is it is beautifully made. It is true to the book's vision, but not to the point of, like, missing what translates better to film and what doesn't. Who were the stars of it? So Michael Sheen and David Tennant mm-hmm. were playing, respectively, Aziraphale and Crowley, the angel and demon who have been on Earth for about 6,000 years and have kind of gotten a little more lackadaisical about this whole tempting and saving business <laughs> and really would rather have a good time and let human beings take care of themselves because they seem much better at it. It really is a subject that only Pratchett and Gaiman could really do justice to. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I kind of I kind of feel like a lot of the um, cosmology was Gaiman and the but what are we going to do about this cosmology <laughs> was Pratchett it's and it's 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 a perfect perfect combo. Um, so yeah, so Zerfell and Crowley are spoiler alert for everything that's in the trailer. Uh, maybe not so keen on the world ending, and uh, hilarity ensues. And I know there's been some criticism that the background characters are a little flat, which. Yeah, okay, maybe they are, but that's because it's a six-part miniseries in one book, not a five-season Game like, of Thrones. It's not like um, American Gods, where they kind of invented this whole new story, right? Well, with American dragged Gods, it on for two seasons. American Gods, they they fleshed it out. They yes. felt the need to give every single character a long character arc, right. and in Good Omens, they're like, you know what? We don't need to. Sometimes we're going to tell this story. And this is the story we're going to tell. And we will enjoy these characters as they come on. But we don't need to know what their childhood trauma was. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm really glad to hear that you enjoyed it. Um, because, uh, you know, there's been a couple of naysayers who said it was really crappy. But um, I think the good reviews are kind of outweighing the bad ones. And, you know, Neil was the showrunner on it. And I know he was very, very excited to actually, you know, be able to uh, to work on something uh, that yeah, of to, his Yeah, to works. bring this to, yeah. to fruition. I mean, I think... I think if this is the kind of thing you like, yes. you will like this. <laughs> like if, yeah, if you like, if you want, you know, your darker gaming, if, if you need, you know, the old eyeballs with teeth, 
then maybe this is not what you're looking for. Um, if you want action-y, action, action, or if you want something, you know, extra deep and dark, then no, this is not for you. It's certainly not your Game of Thrones space filler. Right. But, you know, if, if you want something about friendship and humanity and philosophy and lots and lots and lots of humor on top, then, or if you ever saw The Omen and went, what if this but funny, (laughs) this is for you. Well, you know what? That is a great review. And you know what? I'm going to check it out. It's very hard for me to watch TV because I'm, I just, I don't know. My, my attention span is so short. Yeah. Um, you know, oh. Kate, I'm sorry. Go on. I, I am definitely someone who has a perennial problem of not finishing television series. Like, I'll watch a few episodes, and then I'll watch another episode when I remember to, and then I'll kind of forget to watch the ending, and I'll be like, yeah, that show was good. Oh, how did it end? Oh, I forgot to watch yeah, it. Yeah, I just peter up, too. Um, you know, uh, I'll just give a plug. It has nothing to do with comics, although it is kind of science fiction, but, um, well, it's science fact, faction. Uh, I've been loving Chernobyl on HBO and you know, now that the, uh, ruin of Game of Thrones, which I enjoyed, uh, was, is over, um, this has kind of picked up a lot. I mean, it's already complete. It's only five episodes. Um, I, I, I'll tie it back in. Um, it has an amazing electronic score by a composer whose name I can't remember, but she is an amazing Icelandic composer and she's also doing the score for the Joker. So there, I bought it around. I bought <laughs> it a little comics tie in there, but yes. And that is no- literally the only reason to watch the Joker. I'm sorry, people. I just don't think. I know, I know. Well, I, I'm a big fan of this composer who's, I think her name is Helga Godsman's daughter or something like that. And she is really incredible. So, uh, anyway, well, you know what? Um, we are just about out of time, aren't we? But we are out of time because we are not ending here. No, we are bringing in stargazing. Take it away, Calvin and Meg. And welcome to another episode of Stargazing. Uh, I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor at Publishers Weekly and Co-Editor of PW Comics World. And um, at Stargazing, um, well, we're also going to be talking, you know, let's start over again. I don't so know. Again. You I forgot the fanatic. You forgot the fanatic. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's Editor true. But, I, but, you know, these things are going another show that I know, have no. me talking about the fanatic. But uh, I got lost in my higher credential list. Calvin will just spend that'll be the entire time. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, okay, here we go. Let's try to try again. Three, two, one. And welcome to another episode of Stargazing. I'm Calvin Reed, uh, senior news editor, publishes weekly, as well as the editor of uh, the Fanatic PW's new twice a month. Comics and pop culture newsletter, but we're going to be talking about stargazing. And when I say stargazing, I'm talking about star reviews, and I'm going to be talking about them with Meg Limke, PW's graphic novels review editor. How you doing, Meg? I'm doing well. Hello, comics so, fans. You know, maybe you should just tell our listeners, just to remind them, what exactly is stargazing? So it's in the stargazing um, section of this podcast. We talk about recent released or forthcoming titles that received a starred review in Publishers Weekly. So PW Reviews run the gamut, right, uh, in positive, negative critiques of work. And you can get a very positive review of a book, which is a great thing for the book and author and the reading community. But to get a star is another notch up that notates a uh, exceptional work. And it usually is somehow notable, but also it's really got to be, you know, hitting all, um, all the high notes. So yeah. great art, is, great yeah. narrative. There we go. The stuff we think they're really great books. Right. All right. So what do we got today? So we're going to talk about Leaving Richard's Valley by Michael DeForge, mm-hmm. which is a drawn on quarterly title that released in March. Oh, great. So it's recently released and it's got this gorgeous silvery cover. So now that it's out, um, it's a real little little art object to put, you know, in your um, on your shelf and around your house. It has the kind of it's a it's a coffee table book. It's a really beautifully produced book. Without a yeah, doubt. it's beautifully produced. Um, but the interior is um, a real DeForgian adventure. He's <laughs> he's a comics darling. You know, Calvin and I were talking about this before we got on tape. He's really prolific. He turns out 
titles. Um, he tends to have experimental approaches, both in narrative and drawing style, um, elongated figures. And in this book, these sort of cute, um, not quite accurate, but expressive um, characterizations of little animals. There's a lot of little animals in this book. One of them is a heart shape with legs, which they refer to as a raccoon. Okay. <laughs> um, and All right. Richard's Valley is the site of a cult. So this is all about a group of little animals who are kicked out of a cult in Toronto. And in, in the stepping back in the narrative, it's really about like what defines a city and what defines um, an idealistic community, an intentional community, uh, and how, you know, kind of ultimately like what defines a good life. So as these animals are kicked out of their cult and then go to like, basically like the other side of the park. So they've been in one side of the park under the, um, you know, benediction of Richard, and then they get exiled to the other side of the park. They have to grapple with, you know, what makes a good life as they yeah, navigate the city of Toronto. Well, it, it, I mean, obviously this sounds fascinating. I mean, it's very been very interesting to follow DeForge's career. I mean, he's, I mean, he's published quite a few books. He's, he's uh, taken this, very simple and almost whimsical style, and he's uses it to weave these stories that are can be troubling or funny or goofy or just you know uh, uh, experimental in nature. Um, but they still seem to have this kind of folk quality, and mm-hmm. he's really become he's really kind of moved from what you might think of as highly experimental to kind of a fan favorite in the indie comics community. This book is very accessible as well. Um, it's each page, you know, they, they each page works alone. I think it must have been a webcomic before, um, or at least drawn, you know, sequentially as a page at a time. So he has four panel pages, sometimes a full panel to a page, um, but dominantly four panel pages. And so every single page has a setup and a punchline. And but yet, even though they're independent, it does definitely accumulate into a really compelling narrative, you know, of of loss. Um, betrayal within the community, like the reason that the animals are kicked out, um, disturbs them after their exile and, and then finding a sense of home and super funny. It's hard to describe the humor except that it's, um, you know, it's like your favorite comedy show that you can't explain to anyone else until they sit down and watch it. Yeah. And I, and I unfortunately have not read the book, though I've got a, a, a big, um, tempting and really gorgeously produced volume in my office. Uh, but I intend to, but it really is, uh, reading the, the PW starred review. I mean, it really is kind of ambitious, uh, um, and, and I would have to guess incredibly rich treatment because it seems to pull together so many themes here. Um, yeah. yeah, it's satirical. It's, it's very funny. I mean, it doesn't move you to tears exactly, but it definitely mm. makes you pause and think about, um, again, like how we, how people are drawn into, um, into these kind of situations with gurus, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's a joke, right? It's a joke that, like, this dude has all these animals in his cult. But at the same time, like, this, you know, the documentary Wild Wild Country was really popular recently last year at Netflix, which was about mm-hmm. this huge commune that um, developed in the Pacific Northwest. And it it was so fascinating because, like, you watch it and you don't get why people were so obsessed with this man, you know, the guru. And it, there's something very similar in this. And yet... There's an authenticity to the way that the animals discuss their their um, absolute adoration of this figure that really works, you know. And it's it's very very funny. And there's also just you know he experiments throughout the course of the narrative. Like there's a whole section where from um, pen and ink he starts making like little model figures and photographing them, mm-hmm. you know. And then in certain sections, just the drawing style changes. So you just <clears> come <throat> into the kind of world of the way he produced it as well. And so. It has that completest aspect for anybody who maybe had picked up sections of this before and now wants the entire volume. Yeah. All right. Coming out from Drawing Quarterly. Out. Out now. Actually, already out. Yes, already mm-hmm. out. From out from March. Actually. We're a little late on this one. All right. All right. <laughs> and what else do you have for us? So totally different style. Um, Moonbound from Helen Wang, which is novel graphics. Um, Jonathan Fettervorm's Moonbound. And this is uh, one of many treatments, graphic and prose, and otherwise that are coming out on the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's actually another graphic novel that we reviewed and got a very positive review, but 
not quite a star, but a very positive review from self-made hero Apollo that came out um, as well with Fitch Baker and Collins. Mm -hmm. But what's really unusual and well done with Moonbound is that Federvorm takes not just um, the, you know, the nail biting moment of the lunar landing with uh, Armstrong and Aldrin, you know, and like a very close watch on how they, how they navigate that feat, but he pulls back in between um, that timeline to like the complete timeline of the human interest in the moon and reaching it from, um, you know, early astronomical um, thinkers and philosophers and dreamers and what that looked like. And then how our understanding of um, the stars emerged and then yeah. really in-depth and often disturbing ex- treatments of the um, development of rocket technology, including, which I did not know, that a lot of the um, not NASA's technology came in part from um, Nazi scientists who used Jewish um, interned peoples to oh, develop yeah. the technology. Yeah, Werner von Braun um, yeah. also who was, was key in it. No, this book is really – is really uh, – uh, I mean, it's it's such a perfect example of how you can use comics really well to illuminate history. And I mean, and, mm-hmm. and I should say also to give the writer even more credit for the kind of narrative that he's built here. As you as you described it, it's it's a really an interweaving of all kinds of approaches to telling history. It's it's you know it it, it looks at the topic. Um, it looks at every stream of thought that that kind of contributed to making us to making this thing possible both the the, the poetic aspect of what the moon has meant you know to humankind forever as well as all the hard scientists and just the incredible like line legacy of historical figures mm-hmm. like Kepler and uh yeah I guess you could even go back to Copernicus and uh What's the guy Tycho Van Bro who? Um, yeah, there's a great thing about Van Bro who had you know didn't have a nose. He lost it in yes, a duel. Yes, nose. Yes, just lots of great trivia, but also a real humanization of those experiences. There's a um, fascinating piece about um, a Soviet scientist who was erased from Soviet official histories, mm. um, Sergei Korolev, and. And yeah, Margaret Hamilton, you know, our um, star of recent software whiz that got kind of quickly overlooked. Yeah, Um, yeah, no, it 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 really takes uh, history and storytelling uh, uh, really to a really terrific level. And I really do love the drawing. I really, I really think the uh, uh, what's his name, Federbon, has this perfect combination of precision uh, and cartooniness Mm -hmm. uh, that really relieves just the you know methodical story that he tells. So it it really is a great way to present history um uh, using visual techniques. It's uh, I I love this book. I've only it's, only read a big chunk of it, but it's fun. Mm-hmm. Our reviewer read the entire thing. Yeah, I, I'm good at two. I'm, I'm finishing it because I really do love how he's approached it. Some of this, I was, you know, some of the stuff I was familiar with personally. I mean, I do know yeah. something about the history of uh, the development of rocketry after. Are you World a moon wonk? Huh? Are I, you a moon wonk? I, I, you know, I'm a kind of a rocket. Um, yeah. You know, a, a big machine sort of do impress me. So yes, uh, but really, this is something. I mean, as someone who, um, you know, I was in college. When uh, they they landed on the moon, and I remember us in this. Uh, well, actually, I was and I was in high school in a college prep program at Georgetown University, and we got to stay in the dorms over the over the uh, summer. And I remember us watching around this little black and white TV. Um, you know, this the book the moon is really landing. going to appeal to folks who grew up fascinated with rockets, and you yeah. can really see that in the text. And he did it in a tight package. This is not a long, long book. I mean, yeah. I think sometimes a really long book might be one asking for a star, right? Because you feel like it's such an epic accomplishment. But in some cases, a book that attacks such a huge topic does it in depth, but does it without going overly long, you know, it's still an accessible read is really what the achievement is. Like it's with just book. a fun read. Because don't get, him, get her wrong. It's information packed. Oh, yeah, it is. It really is. But this guy has a graceful historical storytelling style and really um, drawing and writing. Um, So, uh, yes, highly recommend it to everyone. It really is. It's a perfect book for this anniversary. 
Here, I'll read um, a bit of the review, which I didn't do for DeFord. I don't know if we should swing back to it. But the understated text, quote, put three men on top of nearly six million pounds of explosives, aim them at the moon, and light the fuse, unquote. Yes. Plays yes. nicely with the accessible illustrations. Fetterworm plays neat homage to a brief, shining achievement and the centuries of painstaking endeavors needed to accomplish it. Yes, there you go. And I should add, um, the, the book is published uh, by um, Hill and Wang at FSG, but, uh, but it's also uh, a, an imprint there called Novel Graphics, uh, mm. started by Tom Labine. Uh, wow, it must be almost 10 years now. Um, uh, he, he eventually left. And was taken over by Amanda Moon. I I know she left a year or two ago, but really it's good to see another book coming out in the tradition of novel graphics. A really well-researched and thoughtful look at history. Um, uh, That's one of the things that – that's really what it was launched to do, novel graphics, was really to do quality nonfiction in the graphic form. So these books together are very different types of reading experiences, but I think that um, they're going to appeal to a wider audience. You know, each of them are, are kind of poised to have a lot of people pick them up. There's there's going to be a lot of books out about Apollo this year, so hopefully this one will find its niche. So great. Leaving Richard's Valley by Michael DeForge and Moonbound, uh, Apollo 11 and the Dream of Space Flight, Flight by uh, Jonathan Fettervorn. So thanks, Meg. Thank you all. Okay, well, Calvin and Meg with some stimulating conversation as always. Well, Kate, it's been fun. I've really, I always enjoy our duo shows. Yeah, it adds a little variety. Um, no offense, Calvin, we like it when you're here. Yes, and you are much missed, and uh, we'll be glad when it's the three of us. And uh, because you know what, there is going to be, there will be more, more to come. come.